Why are you here this morning? Did you come this morning to see a bunch of talented people on the stage? I hope not. I'm, not, I'm sorry, that didn't come across exactly right, did it? <laughs> Just hold on for a minute, let me get there. You didn't come this morning to hear somebody preach the Bible or teach the Bible in your Sunday school class, did you? I hope not. You didn't come this morning so people could see you dressed up and know you've at least taken a bath once a week, right? I hope not. See, there's a lot of great things that we could do on Sunday morning, but there's really one reason and one purpose only that you should be here this morning. To do that very thing for which you have been created to do, and that's to worship the Lord God Almighty. He is our singular focus. He is the only focus for us on Sunday morning. We do have a ton of talented people on this stage. They do incredible things. But we're supposed to be focused on one person, one thing, and that's worshiping God Almighty. So this morning, let's pray as we move into that. Father, we love you. God, I pray that you would become our focus. Not just one of the good things that we do. Not just something that's a part of our life, God, but that you would become the number one focus of all that we do. Especially this morning. As we've been drawn here from all over the place. To come corporately, to sing, to worship. But for one reason, one only, God, that's to lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen. What did you do? What's the first three things you did this morning? Think about that. First three. Now, I know you woke up and you got out of bed, but after your feet hit the floor, what's the first three things that you did this morning? The first three things. Now, tell somebody right next to you, okay, real quick. Tell them the first three things you did. And it may be your spouse, and they could probably tell you better than you, but you, you tell, what's the first three things you did this morning? Yeah, the bathroom's going to be a popular one, isn't it? Some of us, that was at two, four, you know. Um, do you do the same three things every morning? Do you do the same first three things every morning? See, most of the time we get in a routine, right? And we just kind of go on autopilot. And how, how is it possible that you can drive home and pull in your driveway and have no memory of having ever left? And it's like, you... The large chunk of where you were driving, you can't even remember. Oh, how did I get here? You, you ever done that? It's just like you get an autopilot and you, you don't know how you got around the obstacles. You don't know how you got to where you're at and you're just there. That you can drive completely on autopilot. Um, you can walk that way too. Sometimes I will leave my office and I'll find myself standing right here and then I'll go, why, why am I up here? <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing? You guys ever do that? Is it just me? No. It's amazing how the, how the mind works, isn't it? Um, those things that we do over and over become kind of so common that we do them without ever thinking about them. As a matter of fact, this, yesterday morning, me and my wife were going to go do some shopping, and I pull out of our driveway, I mean out of our neighborhood, and I start turning right. But the shopping's to the left. But I, every morning when I get up, I go, I take the kids to school, and that's to the right. So I started turning that way, and I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to the school, I'm going shopping. Because my mind just kind of took over. Um, my body reacts without my brain being engaged, right? 
uh, it causes me to miss things, but end up in places where I, I really didn't intend. Now, this morning, we're going to be studying Malachi, the last of the minor prophets. Right, take a deep breath. <sighs> Let it out. It's, this is the last one. Okay? We're going to be out of the minor prophets. I think next week we're starting the major prophets. Um, I don't think Steve's going to want to do that. Uh, but we're getting into the minor prophets, and we're going to be talking about Malachi, or Malachi, if you grew up where I did. Right? I didn't know how you pronounced it when I was a kid. I thought it was Malachi. Uh, it made more sense to me. But here's Malachi. He's preaching to the nation of Israel, and they're going the wrong way spiritually. And unless they stop and they turn around, they're headed towards judgment. They're headed towards judgment. Now, like I said, you guys have been studying, and, and let's just kind of put Malachi in context, okay? Um, under Haggai's ministry, they came back and they built the foundation to the temple. And then Zechariah's time came around, and they built, rebuilt the temple. They finished the temple building. And then under Ezra's, the priest's ministry, when he led a group back, they rebuilt the altar in the temple. And then the very last one to come back, Nehemiah brought a group back, and they built what? The wall around the temple. Now, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the altar, everything is completely rebuilt. And now you, you kind of jump forward about 100 years, and that is the time of Malachi. That is the time and the ministry of Malachi. And so this is, this is one of those books where God is seeking to talk to his people who have hidden down the wrong path. So Malachi chapter, chapter 1, I love how this book begins. I love how it starts. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Listen, all through the Old Testament, God speaks of his love. It shows how much he has loved his people. How he has, they've repeatedly rejected him. They've repeatedly turned from him. And yet, he has continued to love them and seek redemption and seek their relationship. Exodus chapter 34 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the God we're talking about. He says in chapter, in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and my soul. It sounds like a God that loves them, doesn't it? David puts it this way in the Psalms. He, it says that he upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He helps the blind to see. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the foreign and sustains the fatherless and the widow. This is a God who loves. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And we can, we can jump to the New Testament, can't we? We can see in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. That while we were shaking our fist at heaven... And said, no, God, he still gave his son for us. And I can remember the day 
that the, the burden and the weight of sin was lifted off of my soul. And the love of God come rushing in. And I remember that day. And that day sustains me to this day. And I remember the incredible love that God had for me. And, and I continually stand at the foot of the cross and say, God, how could you love an old sinner like me? Do you remember that day? And God has continued to show me his love. I think all the ways that God has shown me his love. And um, not too long ago, I thought about this. Um, me and my wife Kelly got to go to St. Jude to run the marathon. And this time we got to go by ourselves. The first time we've ever not taken a crowd. So it was just me and her. And the whole weekend we're sitting knee to knee, nose to nose, and just having a great time. And I thought, God, what an incredible gift you gave me and my wife. I mean, she, she is the perfect match for me. She's a salt to my pepper. She's the sweet to my sour. And she loves my children and she loves me and she works hard, but most of all, she loves the Lord. What a gift God has given me. And, and I just sense, God, thank you for showing your love for me by giving me my wife. How has God shown you he loves you? God has shown you his love, hasn't he? Since that day you gave your heart and your life to him and he took that weight of sin. But he's shown you he loves you. The God who created the universe, who set the stars in the sky, who created the world and everything in it has chosen to love. And he has made you the object of his affection. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Now those of you with children will understand this. When you have to discipline your child because they've done something wrong and they're scared and they're afraid and, and they're ashamed and you have that talk with them, what's the first thing you do? You say, honey, let me frame this conversation with you by letting you understand one thing. I love you. I love you. I love you. And so God is getting ready to tell these people, the children of Israel, something pretty heavy. But he starts it out with saying, listen, you need to understand first and foremost, I have loved you. I have loved you. And so here's these children of Israel. It's been some hundred years, and, and they are back from exile and slavery. Okay? The temple was rebuilt with excitement. They were excited because now they get to worship their God in, in the temple. Their city is rebuilt. They haven't run off Worshiping other gods, they're still going to the temple. They're still going and fulfilling their religious duties as Jews. But something is wrong. Something has gone wrong. If you look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. <laughs> Got to be kidding me, don't you? 
After all that God has done for the people of Israel, this is how they treat him? See, there's there's a purpose for these sacrifices in this worship. According to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 7, it represents our love, loyalty, honor, sorrow for sin and wrongdoing. It's showing an inner commitment to a covenant relationship between God and man. And it's not coming from duty, but coming from devotion. Not coming from obligation, but coming from a love relationship. So they were still coming and doing their worship duties. But it reminds us of what Isaiah said and what Jesus later quoted when he says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now listen to this. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. It's based merely on human rules they have been taught. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're still honoring. They're still coming. They're still doing, but they're not honoring God. And why? Because they're bringing animals that they weren't supposed to bring. They were supposed to bring their absolute best. They were supposed to go out into their pastures and find their absolute best calf and bring that calf to the altar. But they wasn't doing that. Every morning when I was in high school, me and my brother would fix up two five-gallon buckets of milk each. Okay? We'd go down to the calf lot. We'd fill up the bottles, and we had a whole bunch of calves that we fed every morning. And so you would go in and you would feed the calves. Now, you had to be careful with feeding calves because calves will butt you. You know, they'll hit. And so you had to kind of stand sideways when you're feeding calves because they'll get you, if you know what I'm talking about. So you, we're feeding those calves, and the big healthy ones now, they'll come up and they'll wrestle the, the bottle straight out of your hand because they're strong and they're healthy. And so you feed all of them first, but then you had to go to the back of the calf lot because there were those calves that their hips wasn't growing right. Or some kind of deformity was keeping them from maneuvering very good. Or there was a calf that was laying down and couldn't get up because he was sick. And so we would do our best to tend to those sick animals. But chances are they weren't going to make it. Once they're on the ground, it's almost too late. And so what am I going to do with that sick calf? What am I going to do with that crippled calf? I can't do anything with it. I can't take it and sell it because nobody wants it. I can't kill it and eat it because it's not healthy enough to eat. What am I going to do with it? It's worthless. Well, that's what the children of Israel were doing. They were going out and they had their prized calf that was healthy and strong, but they weren't choosing him because he's too good of a calf. They went and they found the sick and the diseased and the crippled, and that's the ones they brought. What does God need with my really good calf anyhow? He doesn't really need that. Besides, they're just going to kill it. Put it on the altar. See, this is not a minor flaw, guys. This is profound disrespect for God. Not only were their hearts not in it, and they didn't care what kind of worship sacrifice they brought, but they were polluting the altar of Almighty God. They didn't want it to cost them anything. And he says, hey, try this on your governor. See, they were giving more respect to their leaders than they were to God. Try this on your governor and see how that goes. I'll tell you what, this next year when you get your tax bill, I'll tell you what you do. You get that $1,000 that you owe, just go on your printer and say, I'm just going to print some money off, and then I'm just going to mail that in. Uh, even better yet, once you just get your monopoly set out, get you, hey, $1,000, that's two orange $500 bills. Bam, paid. You think they're going to accept it? 
I, even better yet, why don't you just, for this Christmas, why don't you go around the house and find something in your shop that ain't any good husbands and wrap it up for your wife. Give that to her on Christmas. Or I, I've got a better one. Why don't you pull your car over as you're going down the road, get you a really good box, and pull out, walk out in the pasture. There's little presents that cows have left all over the pasture. And you put that in the box, wrap it up really good, and take it, hand it to your mother-in-law. Now be as sincere as you can because this is a representation of your honor and your respect. And hand that to her. You think she's going to be happy with you? You can call it a gift because it's wrapped up, but it's really just a slap in the face, ain't it? Sure, you can call it a gift. It's wrapped. It's in a box. It's got a bow. It's a gift. But it's anything but a gift to the one that unwraps it. See, he goes on to say in verse 14 some very strong words. He says, you expect blessings, but what you're going to end up getting is curses. You're going to end up getting curses. And here's what a curse is, guys. As simple as I can make it. A lot of times the blessing and love of God withholds the consequences of our sin. Now, we do pay consequences, but we don't always pay all the consequences of all our sin. God in his love and his blessing, he withholds some of those consequences. And a curse is this. It's simply God saying, okay, I'm going to allow you to receive all the consequences of your sin. That's fine. You can have all the consequences to your sin. I'm no longer going to bless you. I'm going to let you reap everything that you're sowing. You come and you want blessings and, and you want me to stand up for you. It's not going to happen. Don't think I'm going to allow you to profane my name and mockery out of my name. You've been blessed to this point. You tell me you love me, you're going to obey me. You promise to follow me and worship me, but then you bring me your leftovers. I will not accept your leftovers. Have we been giving God our leftovers, guys? Are we on autopilot when it comes to worshiping? And we dress up. And we show up, and we know the rules because we were taught them. But are our hearts in it? Or are we just going through the motions? See, instead of that excitement that filled us when we first found Christ, we've gotten bored with the Almighty. We're bored with the Almighty. How do you know that? When you start asking questions of how long would this take? Or how much is this going to cost? Or how many times do I have to come before it counts? See, when duty takes the place of devotion, it's human nature to seek minimum steps just to meet the obligation. What's the minimum I can do to meet this obligation that I have? And you contrast that with a true love relationship that's seeking to do the maximum. Everything I can do, all that I am, I give to you, O Lord. Holding nothing back for myself, I give it to you because it belongs to you. See, God desires more than just a sacrifice. He wants obedience. And out of that obedience flows the sacrifice. And what does he tell us? Listen, he says, just stop. Just stop. What if you would just shut the door of the temple and keep them from lighting these useless fires on my altar. Just stop. How do you respond when you're called on the carpet? How do you respond when someone tells you you're wrong? 
Do you respond in pride and you puff up or, or, or do you get broken? Do you deflect or do you repent? Would God stop you from coming in here today? See, the rest of the book of Malachi kind of follows this theme. I'm not going to try to go through every bit of it, but the rest of the book, he deals with other aspects of our life and and how they're affected when one fails to honor God. He goes on to talk about, you know, we weep and we wail and we cry. But I don't hear those prayers and that crying and all that weeping. I don't hear those prayers from you. But you know why? Because you have broken faith with your wife. You have broken covenant. See, sometimes we disqualify ourselves from even coming to worship God at his altar because we've left a trail of broken people behind us. We treat people badly. We treat people horribly. And then we come into the presence of God thinking he's going to accept us just like we are. And we can come and we can just worship him when we treat those created in his image terribly. And he says, you've disqualified yourself. You can pray all the prayers you want to, but if you ain't treating people correctly, then... You're wasting your time. And then he goes on to say that you've robbed me, that you haven't brought your tithe to me. You've kept your tithe away from me, and basically you're robbing me, God says. See, if our relationship with God isn't right, it makes sense, doesn't it, that everything else is going to take a position in life that isn't right. See, our stuff doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And we show this by giving the first portion of it back to him. That's how we acknowledge it. We acknowledge it belongs to him and that it comes from him by giving him his tithe. And when we fail to give God his tithe, that's just one more way we fail to worship him correctly and completely. Listen, I know this is heavy this morning. I know it's tough. This is a tough message. There's a reason why prophets were taken out at the edges of the, of the city and stoned to death. Because the people didn't like these messages. I can tell you this won't go in your top ten of favorite sermons. I just figured this. I figured if you were big enough to whoop me after this message, then you couldn't catch me. Right? That was always my theory. And if you can catch me, you ain't big enough to whoop me. Right? I take a little comfort in that when I preach, okay? At least it keeps my, me calm and collected. But this is, not a great, this is not an easy message to hear, but here's something I want you to understand. He began it by saying, I have loved you. And his goal in this message is redemption. His goal in this message is for you to understand, listen, you're not treating me right. But I long for that relationship with you. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. I'm wanting you to return to me. I'm wanting to complete that relationship with you. He goes on to say this in Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chafed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, 
and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I remember when you're raising a calf on the bottle, you keep them in a tight pen and so that nothing harms them and they don't harm themselves and they don't get lost and animals. So you keep them in that pen and you raise them and you feed them in the bottle until they get big enough. And the day comes when you open up the gate and you let them, you got a bigger pasture out there and you open it up and they go just jumping. I mean, it's the most exciting thing to them. They're just bouncing around and it's fun to watch. And God said, listen, you don't realize it, but you've been, this is causing you more harm than you know. You failing to worship me is hurting you. And I want, to, I want to show you that I love you. I want you to have joy. I want you to be, have excitement in life that comes when you respect and you love me as you should. I don't know if you're familiar with Matthew West. Matthew West is a, a guy, he, he writes and sings songs. I've always enjoyed him on the radio. You may have heard him before. Um, but he wrote a song. And when I heard this song, I thought, wow, perfect. He must have been reading Malachi when he wrote this. And it's called The Motions. And this is, here's how the song goes. This might hurt. It's not safe. But I don't know, but I know that I've got to make a change and I don't care if I break. At least I'll be feeling something, because just okay is not enough. Help me fight through the nothingness of life. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything, instead of just going through the motions? Now, that's a strong song, but when I read why he wrote it, he gave a little excerpt of this is why I wrote this song, and it's just as strong. Listen, he said this, I don't always feel it. Sometimes my faith seems stale, numb. Sometimes I pray, but I don't feel connected. I sing, but my song sounds empty. I write, but my words sound cliche. I ask God questions, but I don't hear answers. I could try to act like I'm always so spiritually refreshed and thriving in my relationship with God, but that wouldn't be honest. Does your faith journey ever have these deserts? And I think one of the greatest challenges in actively living out a relationship with Christ on earth is to avoid the trap of simply going through the motions. I know what a Christian should say. I know how to act. I know how to put up a spiritual front even if I'm not passionately seeking God. And he says the last lines of the chorus strikes him every time he sings it. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I'd given everything instead of going through the motions? Guys, are you going through the motions? Did you just show up this morning and you, you, you got here and you're going, why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing? Because you just got caught up in the motions. Caught up in the rules and the religiosity, the things that you were taught. And if God had been standing at the front door of the church, what if he had stopped you? What he'd say, don't even go in there. Don't even go in there.
His desire for devotion and love is what he wants, not just your presence.